Welcome to a Work in the West podcast, supported by funding from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, and organized by Drs. Andrew Stevens and Sheila Campbell at the University of Regina. This alt-conference series interviews researchers, graduate students, and community members about the state of work and employment in Western Canada. Enjoy. Today we have with us Sarah Seibert. Sarah recently defended her Emmy thesis at Simon Fraser University with the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Department. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And we're delighted to have you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your current research and the master's thesis you recently defended? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I have a long history working in the labor movement and the LGBTQ movements. I identify as queer as well. And that was sort of my starting place. Those, the overlaps between those two movements was really interesting to me. And I also think that there is a bit of tension between those movements. Sometimes I, I spoke to this in my defense that certainly there are moments within my queer community that the topic of unions comes up and there is a lot of concern and a lot of defensiveness from within my community. So I found that really interesting and wanted to dig into that a bit further. I also worked alongside the Canadian Labour Congress in my undergrad, as well as the Saskatchewan Federation of Labour. And then when I moved to BC before I started my master's, I was actually working as a support staff at the BCGU. So it was really interesting while I was working there to see the ways that that union was quite progressive. And then also some of the ways that they, that I was witnessing the sort of integration and the regulation of their really progressive policies or resolutions. So that was another sort of starting place for figuring out how I wanted to approach this master's thesis. And so for the thesis, I conducted 11 semi-structured qualitative interviews, and that was with both members, staff, and leadership of the BC Government and Service Employees Union, also known as the BCGU. And yeah, it was uh, really important to me that I talk to not only just members, but also those folks who actually work for the union and within the union. Thank you so much for telling our listeners a little bit about your research. And next, I want to know, why did you want to research on this topic of two as LGBTQ plus advocacy and unions, specifically the British Columbia General Employees Union? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to start by noting, I appreciate that you've used the acronym 2SLGBTQ Plus, because I've seen that shift happening in the labor movement and the broader world to center two-spirit voices. And I speak to this a bit in my thesis. And in my thesis title, I actually have LGBTQ2S+. And that was something that evolved over the course of me writing. And so from a logistical perspective, I had to keep it LGBTQ2S+, but I really appreciate that language shift. Um, a bit off track, but I'll circle back here. So yeah, because I was working with the BCGU, I really, I, I really wanted to sort of see the ways that the progressive ideology of the union could maybe find its way to the membership and sort of that grassroots level more effectively and also just hear from people. Maybe, maybe it was the case that members were feeling like those policies were really well implemented and that me as a staff person, was sort of missing that middle piece. But with that being said, 
as a staff person, I could see how, you know, for example, some of my colleagues weren't really too sure how to use pronouns properly, or certainly weren't comfortable or familiar with the practice of asking for people's pronouns. So that was like a really simple example where I was like, okay, this is really interesting. These conversations are happening at the convention level, but not necessarily happening within the BCGU. So that was sort of why I chose the BCGU specifically. And I also, you know, from a small scale research project as this one, I was sort of the sole investigator aside from my supervisor for this project, I really wanted to make sure that it was small and specific. And I also, you know, having worked in Ottawa at the Canadian Labor Congress in my undergrad, it was very apparent to me that the bulk of labor movement research was happening on the east coast of Canada or in the Ontario region. And so it was really important to me that I focused my research in the west. I grew up in Saskatchewan and I knew about Simon Fraser having a relatively new labor studies program. And so I was really interested in, yeah, making sure that my data was coming from the western part of Canada. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Next, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you mentioned curing the labor movement in your work. What does that mean for workers and the unions that represent their interests? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because my, my project has almost a meta element to it in that I am talking specifically about LGBTQ2S plus advocacy, but I'm also talking about the notion of queering beyond someone's gender or sexuality, but as an actual approach to governance or advocacy. So I think the notion of queering sort of ties more into what you'll read in the literature as being described as union revitalization or union renewal. And I just think it's also really important to note at the front that this concept of changing the union, you know, making the union more progressive. This isn't new. This isn't something that's come out in the last couple of years, as you'll read through union renewal or even social unionism. In fact, women of color within the movement, within the feminist movement, had been spearheading that long ago. And we're really identifying the patterns of bureaucracy and hierarchy within business unionism and that shift that was happening throughout the 70s into the 80s. And so what I'm calling queering the labor movement, I think actually I owe a lot of credit to those, those activists who have been doing that for decades, are continuing to do that for decades. So that's the first thing I wanted to identify. For me, queering the labor movement means looking at the systems and the rituals within the union and considering, first of all, who's being left out, and second of all, what's not working with these, these traditions and these approaches. And I think that there's a bit of an elephant in the room around you know, union density or the number of unionized workers in Canada. It's been dropping consistently since the late 80s. And so what's happening there and how can we start to rebuild a connection between members and, and their movement that they've created? And so I think that concept to me is is queering that there, there's something being changed or queered in that process and where does an intersectional analysis and membership mobilization fit into advancing to slgbtq plus rights and representation at the bargaining table and in the workplace mm -hmm. 
yeah, I mean, <laughs> I it's at the core, it's at the absolute center of, I think, all of the work that needs to happen. I think the first thing that needs to happen is an interrogation of the structures and ideas that are creating barriers for more intersectional and rank and file led labor organizing. You know, if we ask who is privileged within the union structure to actually make the important decisions, I'll give the example of the budget of the union and ask how are certain people finding themselves promoted in that system, then I think there's a really important conversation to be had about the overall structure of the union. So I'll give you an example of this. Lots of unions, the BCGU is certainly included in this, rely on an electoral system. And part of that electoral system, and this came up a lot in the conversations I was having for my project, was the notion of what's a leader or what qualifies someone to be a good candidate to be promoted within the union. And for the folks in my research project, they were saying, you know, lots of our, you know, comrades are not comfortable being at the forefront of the meeting because they may not be out. They may be not feeling confident and comfortable being themselves in union settings and in the workplace. So those folks are not going to be likely to be the ones that put their name forward to be elected and then finding themselves into those leadership positions. So I think this is a really specific example, but a really tangible example of how could we reconsider the notion of a leader and therefore who we're going to elect within the union to, to kind of make their way to the top of this hierarchy. What if we undid that process altogether? Or certainly, what if we reimagined the way that we conceptualize a good leader within the union to start to really see more diverse perspectives and ultimately like your question alluded to a more intersectional approach to the union. Thank you so much for telling our listeners about that. And next, I wanted to ask you, what barriers exist in unions for marginalized voices? Yeah, <laughs> this is where it really gets into the, to the good stuff. And I think really for me, this is what my research findings boiled down to. So I'm gonna allude directly to three research findings I found throughout the project. So the first one's no surprise, but it's education. But when I say education, I don't necessarily just mean education for union members. I also think that it's vital that the union staff and the union leadership are receiving education. It was consistent in my data, actually, that staff within the union don't receive queer trans specific education. So again, like I was speaking to earlier, you may get really progressive policies or resolutions coming from the convention floor, but in the day-to-day -day interaction, there might be a really harmful incident that happens in which the union staff person doesn't even realize they may be embodying a transphobic position or using transphobic language. And then from the perspective of the staff, say a staff rep within the union, if they don't have that education, it becomes much harder to implement a collective bargaining agreement language that is really centering and promoting queer and trans advocacy. And I'll give a really simple example again of the push to have more gender neutral washrooms in union offices and ultimately for more gender neutral washrooms in union in workplaces. So, you know, without that sort of comfort and education, it's hard to go for it. I think another piece of the education is also making sure that shop stewards are getting specific education around LGBTQ plus advocacy. So ensuring that those shop stewards who may be the first point of contact for a member who is experiencing homophobia or transphobia, that they have the tools to be able to not only 
be comfortable using the right language and know how to properly advocate for that person, but also be able to be that first point of contact in terms of crisis management and de-escalation. So the second finding I have that I think re relates to your question about barriers and sort of overcoming them is just a lack of consultation. And I think this lack of consultation is most evident with budget and the spending of money within the union. Contributors of my thesis talked about, and I'll give a really specific example again, the bulk of money for queer and trans advocacy within the BCGU going towards pride events. So such as investing in a float or producing mass amounts of union branded paraphernalia. Whereas the participants for the project we're talking about the need for an advocate, an LGBTQ plus expert, who could be sort of that middle point person, maybe between the shop steward and the staff rep, or even be present at arbitrations. And so that would be a position that would be paid and that potentially also could be a position for a queer trans person within the union to, to really be able to get into a meaningful role, a consultation role and a role of leadership. And I think that this would be absolutely relevant for other marginalized groups as well. What would it look like to have people being supported by union money to be able to really make sure that the members were being heard who were experiencing marginality in the most uh, substantial ways? And then the final piece I'll just say, and I think this is actually related to my point around a paid advocate and that sort of transparency around budget within the union is I heard a lot of participants in the project talk about burnout. And they were talking about burnout and unpaid labor within the union, particularly around shop steward labor. I had one participant tell me that she you know, was getting calls at all hours of the night from folks because she was a trusted person. She was a person of color. She was a queer person. So she had that lived experience. People felt comfortable going to her for that advocacy. But meanwhile, she herself was burning out and right now said, I, I can't be a shop steward anymore because I just can't sustain it on top of my, you know, 40 plus hour work week that I'm trying to just, I have to have to be able to sustain living. So I think what would it be like to support those really, really important people in our union to be able to do that good worker advocacy financially? And, and I think that's a bit of the union walking the walk. You write in your work that leadership needs to open itself to the feedback given by individual members so no one gets left behind. What role do rank and file movements play in forcing leaders to listen and represent to SLGBTQ plus experiences? Mm -hmm. So I think rank and file members have been asking for working alongside leadership in a meaningful capacity for a long time. And I think that that needs to be embodied. And I, again, I'll give another example. So for my project, a lot of participants talked about the organizing of a 2SLGBTQ and 2SLGBTQ plus roundtable. And while the rank and file members were consulted and totally invited into the process of planning, they weren't actually given an, empower, an empowered sense of being able to make decisions about the event. So in the end, the, the people that, you know, volunteered their time really, really gave their lived experience and suggestions. And when it came down to actual budgetary decisions or the bigger event decisions, they weren't consulted. And, and the sense from these folks was that that the advocacy was performative and that it wasn't really there. The, the leadership were, 
weren't really putting on this event to benefit them. So I think just really meaningful partnership alongside the members who need to be, who need to be really at the forefront of this movement because it's theirs. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And what kind of response have you gotten to your research and the findings? Yeah, uh, funny enough, it's exactly one month today since I've defended my thesis. And it was just last week that I actually finally handed in my final copy of it through all of the process. So that's all to say I haven't, I haven't been able to spread my wings too far yet. In fact, I'm still in the process of meeting up with the BCGU to figure out how I can start to share these data findings with them because it's really their project to receive. This is this was information by their members, by their staff, by their leaders. So it's for them. And so that's going to be my first step. And I'm hoping for positive reception. And I'm also really hoping that the BCGU is open to being a leader in this in this area. I think that by by having this project done, they, they're having an opportunity to say, yeah, we've, we were hearing from our members and we're hearing from the people that wanted to speak to these issues and we're going to implement them. And hey, labor movement in Canada, what are you doing? How are you being receptive to these things? So hopefully I'll be able to, to be able to connect with other unions and that the BCGU will partner with me in some way, even if it's just through social media or any sort of promotional material. And I will also say that someone from a different union in in Winnipeg has contacted me to put together a workshop so that unions can kind of have a starting sense of how to do research within themselves. I think that this is something else that's really important is that unions feel empowered to get data on their own membership, whether that's through an audit or through a qualitative process like I was engaging with with the BCGU. So, so this person from the union in, in Winnipeg has reached out and, and said that they were really interested in the project and would really like to hear more just about how I did this research with union members, particularly marginalized union members. So that was pretty exciting and I, and I think is a good sign that people are, are interested in the movement to start having some of these more uncomfortable conversations. Absolutely. Your work is action-oriented and demands changes. So what's next in terms of expanding your research and uh, affecting change in unions? Big question. I think I've alluded to some of my sort of next step plans. Certainly, I I just want to collaborate with the BCGU as much as I possibly can. Hopefully, I can also share some of these findings at larger venues, such as convention, of course, COVID was a bit of a a barrier to even being able to connect as I was writing on those larger levels or at any sort of conference level, but hopefully just getting sort of this, this data out there. I think that the, that the wisdom and the labor of the participants deserves to be heard at, at the broader level of the Canadian labor movement. So I'm really just hoping that I can get the ear of leadership sort of throughout the country, certainly in the West and yeah, I, I, I'm just really hoping that that there is an, an openness to a shift. I, I spoke to a friend of mine who worked with the Canadian Labour Congress for a very long time, and she said, like, it just will take one union to feel confident enough to say things aren't necessarily going perfectly within the movement. How can we actually start to talk about change? And so 
I'm really hoping that there's, there's an openness to that and that I can have those conversations with the larger unions that have the financial and the political backing and strength to be able to take on the, the bigger corporations and the bigger government um, challenges ahead. So yeah, I really, I'm really hoping that, that those, those unions that have the power can, can be strategic in using it to really fight for the most vulnerable workers. Thank you so much for answering all my questions. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on our podcast. I certainly learned a lot from your research and it's so uh, prevalent that you're doing such important work. The music in this podcast has been brought to you by Nick Faye and the Deputies. <laughs>